Good morning, y'all. Good morning. Good morning. So we are continuing our study of Revelation, and we are going to be in chapter 4 this morning. We're going to cover the whole chapter, all 11 verses. And the reason we're doing this, I think I mentioned it whenever we had our Bible study on Friday night, is because I want to take time on Friday nights and go through the seven churches that are mentioned in chapters 2 and 3 and really unpack those and, and slowly work through them. It's more of a, a Bible study setting. And so if you want to listen to what I talk about concerning those churches, then tune in to the podcast for those days. And again, those will be Friday nights. But we are going to jump from chapter 1, which we looked at last time on Sunday, last Sunday. And we're going to now talk about future things, the things hereafter, that division of the book of Revelation. And the reason I'm doing this in part is because I believe that we could very well be raptured while we're going through the book of Revelation. Just because it would be awesome, wouldn't it? And I just feel like it is something that requires our imminent attention, immediate attention. And so we're going to start with chapter 4, and we're going to go through, and we're going to see what Revelation has to say about the future, especially for those who are listening to us. If you're not convinced yet that the Bible is God's Word, and you're not convinced that uh, Jesus is God and Savior, well, hopefully as we go through Revelation and as we consider the world that we live in today, God will convict you and convince you that His Word is truth. So we're going to be in chapter 4 this morning. Let's start in verse number 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up here, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he that sat was to look upon like jasper and sardine stone, and there was a rainbow round about the throne, and sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne were four and twenty seats, and upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal, and in the midst of the throne and round about the throne were four beasts, full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast was like a lion, the second beast like a calf, the third beast had a face as a man, and the fourth beast was like a flying eagle. And the four beasts had each of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for this opportunity we have to come together. I look forward to it every single week. You speak to me in a powerful way, God. You encourage me. And I pray, God, that as I teach this word that you've given us here in Revelation 4, that you will help me to be an encouragement to those who are present, that you will show us your wisdom, Lord, not my wisdom. And I pray, God, that you will give us opportunities to share it and apply it in our lives this week. We thank you, God, for all that you've done. And we pray that we'll get a glimpse of your glory this morning. 
We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you look at your notes, and I think I've passed out a number of copies, so hopefully everybody's got one. The title of this message is a pretty simple one. I don't think that there's any need for me to make Revelation chapter 4 any more fancy and amazing than it already is. And so the title for this message is The Throne of the Eternal Father. And so we're just going to walk through step by step what God is saying to us in this and find ways to apply it to our lives. So the first section that we're going to look at on your notes is the door of heaven is open, which to me is maybe the most exciting part of all this, just the fact that we have access to heaven. It says, A door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up here, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately John was in the Spirit. This is definitely in my mind, I know there are lots of commentators that might debate this, but I am convinced that this is a description of the rapture, and John is taking the place or representing the church. Because from this point on, we see the church in heaven, we see the church crowned, having already come before the judgment seat of Christ, and we see judgment being poured out on earth, and the church is exempt from that. So I think that if you're looking for the rapture in the book of Revelation, this is the place to look at. Now, some people would argue, well, this is John being taken up into heaven. He's the one seeing the vision, and so we shouldn't go beyond that. But often in a prophecy, you'll have a person representing more than just that person. Um, we have in the Old Testament examples of Israel being used to represent Christ. The point of this passage right here is that Jesus extends an invitation to all to come up here. Now, obviously, when he gives it in this point, he's giving it to John. And since I believe John represents the church, this is God inviting all of his children, Jesus inviting all of his children to come to their heavenly home because they're citizens of the kingdom. But I think in reading this, if you're listening, if you're listening to this podcast, those words come up here. They apply to you as well in the sense that Jesus died on the cross, not just for those who have already accepted him. He died on the cross for everybody who's willing to believe. And so if you want, to be a part of this glorious kingdom that we're about to describe. These are my favorite passages in scripture because of their majesty. If you want to participate in that majesty, benefit from it, enjoy it for all eternity, then you need to respond to that invitation to come up here. Because even though the rapture hasn't happened yet, when you receive Jesus, you're receiving the blessing of glorification, the blessing of a new body, the blessing of a rapture. Even if you don't get them right now, you have the Holy Spirit who is the down payment, the guarantee of those things. So when I read this, uh, I own these verses for myself because I've received Jesus as my Savior. And he wants everybody to do the same. And so on your outline there, Jesus invites all to his heavenly home by his Spirit. Notice in verse 2, immediately I was in the Spirit. The Spirit is the Holy Spirit, no doubt. And so the only way we can have access to heaven, the only way John was able to see this vision of heaven, is because of the Holy Spirit in his life. And we have that same Holy Spirit. We may not have a vision granted to us ahead of time like John, but because we have the Holy Spirit, we know that we will hear that trumpet and go up to be with the Lord. And so if you're asking yourself, well, how do I get the Spirit? The Spirit is patiently putting up with the world and you yourself if you haven't received Him. And He's wanting to come into your life. He's wanting to make His home with you if you're willing to let Him. And so that's something we should come back to all the time. And we've talked about this before in the past. we got to remind ourselves of those basic blessings and privileges that we have. It's easy to get bogged down by the degenerate world that we see around us, by the changes, which are almost always negative. It's really easy to get just pulled down by that like in quicksand. But when we come back to stuff like this, 
it's like we can get a taste of heaven even if we haven't been there yet. And so I think that's one of the biggest things we need to take away from Revelation is the encouragement that it brings. But let's move on and let's talk about now the glory of the Father. So in verse number two, the second part of the verse describes a throne which was set in heaven, uh, set resolutely, uh, immovable from eternity past to eternity future, and once sat on the throne. Now, the one who sits on the throne contextually is clearly referring to the Father because we have the Holy Spirit described as being before the throne. In chapter five, we have the Lamb who is Jesus the Son coming before the throne and going to the right side to take the scroll, as we'll see next week. And so this leaves the Father in the Trinity. So the Father, something you'll notice about it as we read in verse 3, he's not described directly. In verse number 3, it says, He that sat was to look upon like jasper and sardine stone. So we see the luster. We see uh, majesty. We see uh, a brightness, a radiance, and it's described with various colors, uh, that of jasper and that of sardine stone. And we'll talk about those in a moment. We see the rainbow around the throne. But we don't see the Father described here anthropomorphically. Uh, that's a fancy word, which simply means we don't see him described like we do with Jesus. Uh, Jesus in chapter 1, he's got the, the white hair, and he's got the flaming eyes and the robes. And we see him as son of man, you know, one who became like us. Uh, and Jesus, even before he became a man, we see him taking that appearance in the Old Testament whenever he showed up as the angel of the Lord. But here when we see the Father described, we don't see any of that. And I think that simply reinforces John's idea elsewhere that no one's seen the Father but the Son. And so he's the invisible one. You see a throne. You see the brightness around him. Paul, uh, I believe it was in 1 Timothy, he says he dwells in unapproachable light. And, and no mortal man, no mortal creature can see him. And so we have access to the Father through Jesus. And that's why Jesus could say, if you see me, you've seen the Father. We're not missing out on anything. But I think that what Scripture communicates when it says we can't see the Father is Jesus is the mediator. Before created things, uh, before uh, redeemed people are capable of seeing God, in any sense, they have to have someone to bring God to them. They have to have someone who reveals him. That's why Jesus is called the image of God. I mean, he's infinitely above us. And we just have the Son in Scripture consistently taking on that role of revealing the Father. But the one who has complete, unfettered access to God the Father is the Son. And that simply reinforces the idea that we are not Jesus. We are not God in the flesh. We're not God at all. We're made in God's image. We're created beings. And so the only one who can see God's glory and experience it, understand it, and comprehend it fully is Jesus. Uh, we're incapable of doing that. I mean, it's, we say all the time, I can't wrap my mind around that. Well, you can't because you're a finite being. Jesus can wrap his mind around God the Father and his glory because he's one with him. He's fully God. So we'll come back to that. But let's talk now about his glory and what it represents. So moving on in the outline, let's talk about the Father's glory. So the first thing is... The Father is pure in His holiness. He's pure in His holiness, and His holiness is His truth and His righteousness. So we think of God's holiness, He's separate, He's different, and He's separate in a pure sense. We all love that about God. We look around and we see corruption in the world. We need more of God's undiluted pure truth. We need more of God's undiluted pure righteousness. And we see that represented here in the choice of stones that are used to describe his glory. So the first one's Jasper. There's lots of debate. Anytime you, you're dealing with a Greek word from thousands of years ago, 
you have to look at all these writings and see how it's used. And from what I gathered in studying this is Jasper was probably what we would call a diamond today. So it was transparent. Jasper today appears to be a different type of stone than this Greek word as it was used in the ancient context. So that's something that a number of commentators note. We have the same word to refer to a completely different kind of stone, that it's not see-through and transparent, but Jasper here is, because at the end, if you go to the, the second uh, half revelation to the very end of the book, uh, you see the walls. And again, I, I don't have that verse reference for you, but you see the walls of Jerusalem as being, you know, crystal and pure. And so that's probably what's being alluded to here, that the glory of God is crystal clear, again, representing his holiness, his purity. The sardine stone was red. Okay, so it was, it was a very rich red. And so here we have another thing represented, okay? We have the father in his consuming an impartial anger. Now that may seem a little, you know, alarming to us, but we have to understand Revelation is depicting not just the Father's throne, okay? It's depicting the Father's throne before he sends out his son Jesus to conquer the world. And that's about what's, you know, going to be described in Revelation 5. The son comes up to the Father's throne. Uh, so that wrath of God upon a sinful world is being communicated by the redness Another thing that's interesting is a lot of people will point out that uh, Jasper is the first stone in the row of the high priest ephod. Okay, all the stones for the different tribes of Israel. And so Jasper was the first and Sardine was the last. And so they think that it kind of gets everything in there. It's just a way of referring to all the stones in passing without listing them out. And they'll say that this represents Jesus on the throne as a high priest. But in context, like I said, Jesus is the lamb coming before the throne. It would be a very confusing uh, interpretation to say Jesus is on the throne, but yet Jesus is coming before the throne to receive the seven sealed scroll. So I don't think that the stones here are representing the priestly work of Jesus, even though obviously he is our high priest here. It's representing the father. And the reason these two particular stones are being referred to is not because they just sum up all the other ones. They're chosen for a specific reason. So when we see Jasper, we see the purity of God's holiness and we see, of course, also his consuming wrath. Uh, but when we consider the glory of the Father, we can't stop at his wrath because it says there is a rainbow surrounding the throne. And so that's the next point. The Father is gentle in his covenantal love. And this is probably my favorite part of the description pertaining to the Father. In verse 3, there was a rainbow round about the throne in sight like unto an emerald. So, while I do believe the other colors were represented, it's called a rainbow after all. Emerald is really highlighted here. So John is saying what comes across to him more than any of the other colors is the emerald, the green and the rainbow. Emerald is, emerald is, an emerald is all colors. Emeralds are all colors. They have the rainbow. Now, we think of them as green. They're not just green. Well, I mean, no, no doubt there's a prism being referred to here. Yeah, I mean. You go buy an emerald, you can get it in any color. Yeah, in, in this particular case, from what I understand in the original language, green is definitely being highlighted by the Greek word here. So when I think of green and then I think of the rainbow, there are a couple ideas that emerge. I think about, okay, God's judgment on the world during the time of the flood. 
I think of that Sardin stone, the red wrath of God as he poured it out on the earth. Okay, we haven't seen something like that since then, but we're going to see it again. We're going to see another worldwide judgment to come. But after that judgment, because of the faith of Noah and his family who got on the ark, they were saved and they were given a whole new world. And that rainbow was a reminder that God's wrath was not on them and that God was going to keep his promise to never pour out upon the world another judgment by flood, another judgment by water. And the first thing that indicated to Noah that the world was coming back to normal was the olive leaf that was brought to him by the dove. And that's not something that I've seen other commentators note, but it's something that comes to mind for me when I think of the beauty of God's creation. And I think of uh, the promise of springtime, greenery, life. It, it, it just to me, when I think of any day in my life where I've been just overwhelmingly, um, you know, caught up in the love of God because I see him in his creation, it almost always has all these memories have green in them uh, just because it's one of the most beautiful aspects of God's creation. And so that is something that's been noted by a number of people is that when we see the red wrath of God, we're reminded of his judgment on sin. But then we see the rainbow, which is a promise of his grace. And then we see the green, which is a promise of new life. And so, yes, God's going to pour out his red wrath upon the earth. But thank God we have a covenant with him through his son, Jesus. And so we can look forward to the greenness. We can look forward to the beauty of a restored creation. If you think this beautiful day that we can see right now, the sun just came out. If you look outside the windows, if you think this is a beautiful day, imagine how green, how beautiful it's going to be when God restores this creation. Um, and so I think that is something definitely we should take away from this. The father... Yeah, it's, it's, again, that's an interesting point. I mean, even before, even before God made anything, he had a covenant and that covenant was set in place because God foreknows all things. He foreknew our sin. He knew that when he made mankind, mankind was going to fall into sin and there'd be a need for a redeemer. And so the plan was already set in place. And so, yeah, it reminds us that God sending his son into the world was not an afterthought. It's something that he had planned from even in eternity. So yes, that's a very good point, Christy. And so let's move on now and let's talk about the priest kings of heaven. So in uh, chapter four, verse four, it says round about the throne were four and 20 seats. And upon the seats, I saw four and 20 elders sitting clothed in white raiment and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And so we've been talking about we just started talking about the churches, the letters to the churches, and something we didn't touch on on Friday, but we'll get to next Friday is the overcomer passages. At the end of each one of those letters to the churches, it mentions the overcomers. Uh, many people would take these four and twenty elders to refer to all believers, uh, and they would say that uh, they they represent perhaps Old Testament saints being twelve, and then New Testament saints being another twelve. So you got you know, the 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 apostles, and it just kind of sums up everybody. I think that that is interesting, uh, but I think that we could also say uh, even more simply that in the Old Testament, there were 24, uh, 24 orders of priests. And so uh, that's a little bit simpler than breaking it up into 12 and 12. There might be something there. I don't deny that. But uh, the 24 orders of the priests seems to definitely be in, in the mind of John when he's writing this down. I, I think that there's definitely a connection there. But uh, if that's the case, then these people who are sitting in these thrones, they are 
somewhat set apart from the rest of the people in heaven. When we get to chapter five, there's this huge throng about the throne in heaven, and they're singing praises to God and worshiping God. The 24 elders and then the four living creatures of the four beasts that we'll look at in a second, they are distinct groups, okay? So I would say the four and 20 elders represent overcomers. Uh, these are people who they have received a crown. We are promised crowns in scripture for faithful obedience to God. And so these overcomers that are mentioned, they are people who have faithfully served God in their life and they have a seat in God's kingdom uh, reigning with him as co-heirs or partners in his kingdom. Uh, the book of Hebrews is all about partnering with Christ in his kingdom because his inheritance involves dominion. And so these are people who participate in that dominion. This doesn't mean that Christians in general uh, miss out on that dominion. We all participate in it and that we will have a place there. We will be in his kingdom. Uh, we will be exempt from death. Uh, we will obviously always be set apart and distinct and above uh, animal life, animal creation. And we'll even have more dominion over animal creation then than we do now because there is, of course, enmity between man and beast today. I mean, obviously, we're not living in the Garden of Eden. And so God does have these general blessings set aside uh, for all those who believe in his son, Jesus. But these people have crowns, and because they have crowns, they have endured. And uh, that may mean they endured persecution. It may mean they endured temptation and they overcame that temptation. Uh, different scenarios, not every Christian's in the same context in life. But uh, as number three on your outline has there, uh, overcomers will share in Christ's righteousness. That's one thing, okay? It says they are uh, clothed in a white raiment representing the righteousness of Christ. We could leave it there and say that all believers are clothed in the raiment representing Christ's righteousness. And that is 100% true because we all have justification by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus. But if you go through, and again, this is something we will do. If you go through the letters to the churches, it mentions that there are some in these churches that have spotted garments. They got dirty garments on, and there are others who kept their garments from being spotted. Now, since he's referring to Christians in these churches, in that case, having a white garment seems to represent more than just being saved. It represents somebody who's saved, but they are being sanctified as well in their life. So they're saved, and they're keeping free from the defilement of the world. So these people are definitely sitting here because they're saved by the grace of God, but it could be that the white raiment that they are participating in or are wearing here is more than just salvation, and it's, uh, it's an indication that they lived their lives purely in obedience to God. Um, and so that's one possibility. So overcomers will share in Christ's righteousness, um, and overcomers will share in Christ's dominion as well. And so the heads that they have there described wearing crowns of gold are representative of the fact that they have received reward at the judgment seat of Christ and they rule with him. And so it doesn't describe the rest of the throng about the throne as wearing crowns. Now, of course, one question that comes to mind naturally is there's only 24 people here. So I'm sure 24 people aren't going to be the only ones to receive a crown and uh, that certainly leaves open the possibility that either these are rotating seats. Okay, as I've heard, I know Scott. Yes, they did. The orders of priests did rotate. Uh, so this could simply be a rotation where these thrones are sat in by every overcomer on a rotating basis. Or it could be that since the book of Revelation has a lot of symbols in it, it could just be that 24 is taken to represent the whole of overcomers. Okay, 
but I like the, the idea of a rotating seat better because that takes it literally that when he says there's 24 elders and there are 24 seats, there are literally 24 elders and 24 seats. Uh, but the idea, just in case anybody's listening, I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not saying that only overcomers, only those with crowns are going to uh, be clothed in the righteousness of Christ and, and be saved. I'm saying that if you are a believer in Jesus, it is your calling to practically overcome as you've already overcome by the grace of God. If you have believed in Jesus, you've already overcome the world and the devil and he's got no hold on you. And that is an unconditional promise that God gives to all those who place their faith in the Son. But uh, there are many times in our lives where our faith is challenged, uh, not just in terms of what we believe. You know, doubts may come our way. Not just that, but our faith is challenged in whether or not we are going to trust what God has to say. When God says, hey, listen, this is the wrong thing to do. Uh, this is what I expect of my children. Um, I will bless my children if they faithfully follow these household rules that I have for them. Uh, we can have moments where we don't trust that. And we say, you know what? I think I'd rather be satisfied. I I will be satisfied if I do things my way instead of God's way. And so that's the ongoing challenge of believers is to overcome by not trusting in ourselves what we think will make us happy, what we think will you know make a life for ourselves, but what God says will make a life for ourselves. And so overcomers will share in a, a special blessing before God's throne. And I hope, I hope that uh, I will have the honor of sitting in one of those seats one day. And I know a lot of people think, oh, that's, that's pride. It's not pride. I mean, if the Bible says that you're running a race and the Bible says to run that race with endurance is something we should shoot for. I know that if I never sit in one of those seats, then I'm going to be in the throne and I'm going to be praising God and I'm going to be full of joy. And there's going to be a point where all the tears are wiped away and I'm not going to be missing out on anything in my mind. I'm going to be full of nothing but undiluted happiness before God. But uh, I do believe that God wants us to look at this passage and say, I want to be there so that way I can throw a crown before the Lord. And we'll get to that in a second. But uh, moving on to verse number five and on your outline, the terrible and serene majesty of God. Verse five says, out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunderings and voices, and all that's taken together, okay, a big cacophony of sound and lightning. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And so two things that come to mind when I read this is God's power represented here in the lightning and the thundering. It reminds me that God and in his power, he's the mightiest storm. He's the fiercest storm. And I'm so thankful that that's not a storm that I have to fear that rather I imagine myself as Peter in the midst of the storm and Jesus saying, you know, yes, yes, Peter, you can come out on the water and, and I'll hold you up. And even when I sink, the Lord reaches in and he grabs me and he, he sets me up on my feet again. So I think of the power of God. I think of his might and how overwhelming it might seem. God's power does stir up the mightiest storm, but God is also the calm in the midst of the storm. And it's interesting, they may seem counterintuitive, like they just don't go together. Like, how could a God who's so fierce be such a loving God? But that's what makes him so awesome. That's what makes him worthy of worship. And so we see the lightning, we see the thundering, but we see this constant, gentle, burning light of the lamps of fire before the throne. Yes, yes, I was about to touch on that. So this is God's tabernacle in heaven. And so imagine walking into the tabernacle and seeing the menorah, the, the seven branches, that light constantly lit there, and that's the only source of light in that room. It, there's no light coming in from outside. Imagine that comforting glow in the midst of the darkness, and it's constant. It never goes out. 
And that's something that we should remind ourselves about God. He is constant in our lives. And so, yes, while there may seem to be a lot of storms around us and we may find ourselves in the midst of that, uh, thankfully, we will never be in the midst of the greatest storm that is to come upon those who don't believe in Jesus. And thankfully, we always have the Holy Spirit in the midst of our hardest difficulties because he's living inside us. And here we see that pictured with these lamps of fire before the throne. So yes, this is definitely referring to the Holy Spirit. Uh, these are not exactly the same as the candlesticks that are represented on earth. Those are already dealt with in chapter one as being representative of the churches. But the reason the emblems, the symbols are so similar is because the Holy Spirit's in the church. And the only reason we are candlesticks at all is because we have the Holy Spirit. But of course we have to remember the Holy Spirit. Who is the Holy Spirit? Holy Spirit's God. The Holy Spirit's heavenly. And so the Holy Spirit's not limited to people down here. The Holy Spirit's also in heaven, everywhere. And God loves heaven because it represents perfection. And I'm sure that maybe when we get to heaven, God will tell us what, why seven is so important. I wonder, there's probably some reason there behind it. Uh, seven seems uh, quite often used in scripture to represent perfection. So maybe we'll find out why one day. But uh, God's power stirs up the mightiest storm, but God is the calm in the mightiest storm. Uh, in verse number six, let's talk about the crystal sea. Before the throne, there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. So what does this exactly represent? Um, I came to this conclusion on my own as I studied scripture and looked at the original language. And then I was pleased to find there was a very well-respected commentator uh, that I respect him and many others have. And he had the same idea. And I was kind of bummed like, oh, man, I thought I, just, I, thought I discovered something new. And then he had it and he, he was writing in the 1800s. So I was like, oh, OK, well. You know, at least I don't feel like maybe I'm coming up with some crazy outlandish idea. But anyways, the idea is that the crystal sea that's stretched out before the throne is actually like the floor underneath the throne. It's like where God's feet meets. And so you would have, instead of it being like a horizontal plane, like the tabernacle on earth, okay, and you're moving closer and closer as you go in, it's more of God being up on a mountain. And at the top of the mountain, you have the throne suspended above and the throne is resting upborne on this crystal sea, this crystalline expanse. Okay, you can see through it, but it still is tangible like glass. And beneath the throne, in the same verse, it mentions those beasts that were full of eyes round about. And so a number of commentators have mentioned, and, and, and I agree with them, that we have the living creatures supporting the throne, sort of like you see in Ezekiel chapter 1, when it talks about the cherubim, uh, how there is above their head a sapphire expanse, and above that is a throne, mobile throne, and you know we see God's glory depicted there. God is sitting on his throne. In that case, I think it's referring to the sun because it's mobile. Okay, It's God going forth, just as the sun goes forth to accomplish the Father's will. But here, we have something very similar, except it's God's stable throne, his immovable throne. It's in heaven. And instead of this being an expanse above God's head, there's nothing above God. He's on top of the highest imaginable expanse. And that expanse here will be above our head. And so that made me think about, uh, for point five on your notes, God spreads the roof of his tabernacle over us. I don't know about y'all, I'm glad to have the roof over my head. And we often say that when we're listing our blessings. Well, I'm thankful I have a roof over my head. We, we refer to... The, uh, a roof as shelter, security, calm, peace, and, and protection. And so no one has to protect God. He protects everything. So there's no crystalline expanse over his head. 
but he is above it. And I think when we're in heaven, we'll be able to see the Father's throne through it. Obviously, John was able to, but uh, he's above it and we are below it. And that honestly puts us in the proper place as created beings. Who goes above that expanse? Not even the four living creatures go above it. They're underneath it. And so who goes above it? In chapter five, Jesus can go above it. And that's what makes it so much more exciting when you understand that, that when Jesus goes above the expanse, that is him taking humanity, him taking us and giving us a way, giving us contact with the Father, because I mean the Father, <laughs> infinite, unlimited. Where do you even begin to describe him and all of his glory? But in his holiness, which seems so untouchable, in his wrath, which, which seems so immeasurable, Jesus is able to be our high priest and take us to him to where we are not bearing the brunt of judgment. We are not separate from God, but we're able to experience his love, experience the joy that that love brings. And so that crystalline expanse is over the head, just like the roof of the tabernacle spread over us to shelter us. Now in verse number six, moving on, I'm not going to spend too much time on the living creatures because honestly, uh, I think sometimes God just makes things and it, communicates his diversity um, and creativity. It communicates, um, you know, his intelligence, but not every single detail can be explained. But I'm going to try to do my best to explain the gist here of uh, what's communicated by these cherubim because they seem to be cherubim. Uh, the word cherubim comes from most likely an old word meaning to bless, as it has on your notes there. Uh, caribou, not as in the the animals, <laughs> but caribou means to bless, to praise. And that's exactly what they lead heaven in doing is blessing God, the father and blessing his son. And so these cherubim have four faces. They have the faces of a lion, a calf, a man and an eagle. And what's all this about? I think, and this is uh, for filling your blank on your notes, the cherubim picture the noble attributes of God and creations expected praise of them. So attributes of God and what we should do to praise those attributes. I think that's basically what they represent. And so the lion, what does that represent? Well, regal authority. Lion, he's king. Lion of Judah. He's bold. He's powerful. Um, he's worthy of worship. Then we have the calf or the ox. Strength communicated by the ox. But not just strength, but strength and service. God is not just a lion who remains aloof. You know, he's the one who came into the world and he served us by, you know, healing us. You know, by bearing with us by being tempted as we are, but yet not sinning so that way we could be made right with God. So we see his strength, we see his service. The third beast, uh, the face of a man. And a lot of people wonder exactly what's represented here. Well, a human beings are intelligent compared to animals, right? So some people think it's wisdom. It's intelligence. Like, you know, when you compare the intelligence of a lion or an ox or an eagle to a human, obviously we transcend them because we're made in God's image. So maybe that's what's being represented here the intelligence of God. But I think it's more than that. I think it also represents uh, something familiar to us. When we see that face, we see ourselves. And it reminds us that when God came into the world to save us, he became a man. And so when, when I think of personality, when I think of a person, I honestly don't think of animals. When I think of persons, I think of human faces because we have souls and spirits that are different than them. Uh, animals have life in them, but not the life of God as we do. Okay, we're made in God's image. And so whenever you see this human face here and you see that it's reflecting God's glory, it reminds us that everything that makes us us personal, okay, everything that makes us relational, it comes from God. So while the father, you can't see his face here, 
while he's hidden. When we see this human face, it reminds us that God, while he's invisible, he became visible through his son, Jesus. And that is such a comfort to me. When I was growing up, I can remember talking with Nana about this. We were in the car and I said, I have a hard time uh, praying to the father sometimes. And the reason I have a hard time is because the father is just invisible. No one's ever seen him. And then I can remember did our Nana mentioning to me, well, God, the father made himself visible through Jesus and Jesus became like one of us. And so that's why it's so much easier for us. I think whenever we pray, when we worship, well, we don't know exactly what Jesus looked like. Having that image in our mind, uh, it's not idolatry because God did choose to become a man. And so when we see this human face here, we're reminded of God's personality. We're reminded that God is very relational. And while we'll never be able to fully wrap our minds around him like the sun, he does make himself known to us. And uh, he does so through a taking up humanity, assuming that nature. And he didn't come as a golden Yes, yes, he came, exactly. He, he came to our level, and that's what I mean by the word familiar. You know, he's, he's where we can understand him. Uh, the intimacy is implied there. And, of course, the eagle, the last one, that one's probably the easiest one. Eagles fly high. So they've always represented in ancient literature, even today, transcendence, divinity. And Jesus is fully God, and uh, God is transcendent in his wisdom and his power. Uh, and also another thing I'll touch on, notice the order here. Lion, calf, human, and eagle. And ancient commentators pointed out, well, if you read Matthew, it presents Jesus as a lion, as a regal figure, king of Israel, king of the world. And then you go on to Mark. Mark represents more than anything miracles. There's not a whole lot of teaching. Uh, it's more about the miracles that he performs. He is he's a, a man of power. And that would have been very impressive to the Romans to whom the book of Mark was written. Uh, so Mark was represented. And then we have the human face. And the most human of all the gospels is Luke. Because we see his birth described. Um, and and we, we see his connection with Adam. His genealogy in Luke goes all the way back to Adam. So we see the humanity of Christ. And then, of course, John, out of all the Gospels, what highlights the deity of Christ most is the Gospel of John. And so we seem to have an interesting order here that lines right up with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just as we have them in our Bibles. And that's not something... What a coincidence. What a coincidence. And that's something that was mentioned early on when heretics started writing more. Uh, one guy, Irenaeus, responded and said, nope. There are four faces, four portrayals of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They correspond to the four faces of the cherubim. They uh, show us the glory of God incarnate, and uh, we don't need any more. We got four. That's all that God purposed, and so it's complete. I, I think that they represent them in form for sure. And I think that creation, the glory of God in creation is suggested. As far as do they watch over these elements, these aspects of creation, as some people suggested, uh, I don't know if they watch over them, but I, it is interesting that the reptiles are not represented. And I, and I think it is possible that that may be the case because the devil has fallen from that position. So I think that's possible. Uh, but he was one of these... Yes, he reptile. was a cherub. We know right. that for sure. Um, but, again, that is speculation. We don't know. Sure. So I'm careful about it. But it is very compelling. Huh? He is. He is. He's the ancient serpent. So it, it kind of, it doesn't surprise me. You know, it doesn't surprise me at all if that was the case. We'll find out for sure one day if we're right in our theory. Um, but moving on now, 
We've talked about the guardians of the throne. The last thing is verses 9 through 11. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power for thou hast created all things and for thy pleasure they are and were created. So, number one, overcomers will have a crown to cast before the throne. I don't know about y'all. I really want one of those to cast before Jesus. It's a way of worshiping him and praising him that we will only have. And that's why it takes the selfishness right out of it. If anybody thinks it's selfish to want a crown, why do you want the crown? So you can give it to Jesus. You can say, this is yours. Everything belongs to you. That is a, an exemplary, higher form of praise that only those who are faithful will be able to render to God. I want to be able to praise God in, to the nth degree, the highest I can. I want to be able to give that to him. And so that's why we run, because we want to make God proud. We, we love him, and we're so thankful he loves us. And after all he's done, we want to stand before him one day, and we want him to smile upon us and say, well done, good and faithful servant. So we can have that praise to give it right back to him. And again, that's what the four living creatures represent. In a way, they do manifest God's glory. But what do they do? They give it right back to God. I almost mi missed it, but uh, a couple features about them, their wings, speed. Eagerness to obey. I mean, in Ezekiel, they're flitting around like lightning. Okay, they're, they're rapid in their service of God, and we should also have the same. So we think about God's speed to accomplish his will, but we also think about how we should reciprocate. As God is quick to be good to us, we should be quick to obey. And then the eyes of the living creatures. Uh, we think about knowledge. God is watchful. He sees everything. And as he watches over us and knows everything about our lives, and he cares for us and provides for our needs, we should be watchful for him, making sure that our lives are pleasing to him. And so overcomers who have done that, who were eager to obey and they were watchful, they cast their crowns before the throne, That, as all creation should give praise to the creator. Uh, the second point is God deserves all because he made all, which is quite obvious. I mean, but we sometimes think about making in terms of fashioning stuff, forming stuff. But think about it. When God made everything, he made everything from nothing by sheer will. Nobody's ever done that. So we might be able to come up with an analogy of God shaping stuff, you know, like taking of the dust of the earth and forming it to make Adam. Like that is a little bit easier for us to comprehend. But God creating everything just by speaking. Let there be light. Nothing before. Now there's something by his absolute will. Uh, just let that simmer a moment in your brain. Uh, and so God not only created everything from nothing, but it says for thy pleasure, all created things are, which means he sustains them. The reason they continue to exist. The reason we exist right now. The reason we will exist in eternity, even after we receive our glorified bodies, why will we be existing then? He, he'll still be sustaining us. I mean, I can't imagine a time where God ceases to sustain creation because we're always going to need him. And thus we'll always be praising him. Jesus as a high priest representing us, will he represent us only for a time till we get our glorified bodies? No, he's going to stand as our high priest for all eternity. We're always going to need God. Um, and the third and last point is God didn't make us because he needed to, but because he wanted to notice that it says for thy pleasure, they are and were created. Why did he do it? Did he need it to fill some void? You know, he's sad. He needs people. Is that why he did it? No, for his pleasure, for his pleasure, not out of necessity, simply because he wanted to. And so think about God's love for you that 
You didn't have to exist. I, I go back, and this is where we'll wrap it up, but I, I go back to a, a story that my old youth pastor, Tony Ramirez, told me about how um, he was talking with Cindy, and you know they were, I don't know, maybe celebrating an anniversary or something, and he says, I, I, I love you so much, and I couldn't live without you. And uh, he said, Cindy, could you live without me? And she said, yes, I could. And he was kind of shocked. He was like, what? Why would you say something like that? I mean, I couldn't live without you. He's like, well, Tony, do you want me to, to love you and stay with you and live with you because I have to or because I want to? And he's like, well, I guess if you put it that way, I'd rather you want to. And so thankfully, we don't have a God who's just stuck with us because he needed us. But his love is all the more precious because he created us when he didn't need to, just because he wanted to, just because he desired us. To think that I'm desired by the same God who sits on that throne. That, that's, that's the thought that we'll leave you with. God bless. Uh, join us next time for another study of Revelation.